Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and uh, welcome to our latest podcast or vodcast, depending how you're watching it. And this is called Cardiac CT Beyond the Coronary Arteries. And what I'm going to do in this talk, and there'll probably be two parts to this talk, will be to look very carefully at some of the cardiac things we see on cardiac CT, but they don't uh, refer to the coronary arteries. So the first thing I should comment on is looking at the patient's um, aortic valve. Now, in gated acquisitions, we nicely see the aortic valve in essentially all patients. At times, you need to change the obliquity of the uh, data set. And so, for example, if you think about coronal sagittal oblique, I'll go to a coronal display and just draw a line across where the valve should be, and then I get a very good visualization. And this is a schematic of the three leaflets of the aortic valve. When you see them, and I'll show you examples on cardiac CT, they're nice, thin uh, leaflets. Now, when you do a gated acquisition, and you do multiple phases, you're able to look at the valve opening and closing, and you get very nice images of the valve opening and closing, and there have been articles showing that you can calculate the volume of, or area uh, between the leaflets, and this correlates very nicely with TEE, and it's a very important application. Now, when the valve becomes diseased, whether it becomes stenotic with aortic stenosis because there's calcifications or thickening of the valve, we're able to see that, or if the patient has deformities of the valve. Bicuspid valves are something commonly associated with coarctation of the aorta, for example, but do occur in other conditions as well. Patients with bicuspid aortic valve do get disease of the valve significantly earlier, probably 20 years earlier. So it's one of those things that's a predisposing factor to early aortic stenosis. Now let's look at some examples. And here's a very nice example using a classic volume rendering and then reversing the ramp. Now I do reverse the ramp often because it's a very nice way of looking at thin structures of which the valve is. And here's a normal bicuspid valve. Thin, well-defined. Now you have to make sure you're looking at the correct orientation of the valve. If you're too far oblique at times you can make a tricuspid valve look like a bicuspid valve. So you want to be very careful. Uh, of course, when you're doing a 4D display, and I'm not going to show any 4Ds on this uh, set of images, you've seen that many other places on CT as us, but 4D, you watch the valve opening and closing, so you can be much more certain. So in this case, you can see very nicely the bicuspid valve now that it's opening. Again, there's no disease in this patient, but this patient is prone to disease in the future. Now some examples of disease. Here's a great example of calcification of the aortic valve. It's a three-leaf valve, but also thickening of the valve. Remember in the prior case and on the schematics how the valve is basically paper thin. Well, here you can see it's thickened, so it's disease valve. And here's a few more images. And on the negative display, very nice visualization of this thickened valve. This patient is going to develop aortic stenosis or essentially has aortic stenosis, will have complications of AS, and eventually will need that valve and potentially the aortic root replaced. I mentioned bicuspid valves a few moments ago. Here's a good example of a bicuspid valve, densely calcified aortic stenosis. Very nice visualization. I'll show it to you in a few more perspectives. Now, just some numbers. Let me give you some facts. Bicuspid valves, less than 2% of the population, more common in Turner syndrome, patients with coarctation, and patients with VSD. And as I mentioned, it leads to early valve calcification and aortic stenosis with a dilated ascending aorta. Degenerative calcification occurs in all aortic valves over time uh, and all leaflets of the valve. But uh, again, the numbers 
uh, are significantly different with bicuspid valves. With bicuspid valves, it's 20 to 30 years earlier. So very, very important. Now, just some numbers in normal populations that uh, degenerative calcification occurs over time and leaflet thickening aortic stenosis occur in 26% and 2% respectively of the population by age 90. So when you get to 90, then you start worrying about it. Another example, bicuspid valve, very dense calcification, classic aortic stenosis. Some of the articles I mentioned about CT playing a bigger role. Here's an article by Polur that uh, CT enables accurate non-invasive assessment of the aortic valve area. It correctly depicted all 14 bicuspid valves and makes the point that bicuspid valves can be missed by TEE uh, where um, it will not be missed by the CT scan. Another In that same article, aortic valve replacement is recommended when patients present with symptoms of chest pain, failure of syncope, and have severe stenosis, which is typically defined as the aortic valve area reduced uh, to less than 0.8 cubic centimeters. So again, very, very important. Uh, and again, here's that comment about the diagnostic accuracy of CT. So I'd like to show this and make the point that this is one of the uh, roles potentially for CT and surely as we do gated studies and as scanners get faster and we routinely visualize the valve it's something that you need to take a look at again look at some of the numbers look at the uh, sensitivity and specificity and accuracy of CT now one could argue we're talking here about more significant disease moderate or severe aortic stenosis the question is, what about minimal aortic stenosis? How good is CT? That's a bit trickier, but in terms of clinical manifestations, is not going to be important. Again, 4D imaging, we've spoken about this in, in the past, is very important because 4D really gives you that nice visualization and makes diagnosis a whole lot easier. Okay, what else? Let me show you another thing which we commonly or not uncommonly see. What are we looking at here? Well, you're seeing a connection between the uh, descending aorta and main pulmonary artery. Uh, you can see it very nicely in this other set of images as well. And what that is is a patent ductus arteriosus. It's a structure which normally connects the pulmonary artery and aorta, but typically will uh, involute early in life. Now, it's interesting that uh, PDAs alone account for about 12% or up to 12% of all congenital heart anomalies most are incidental, often they're partially calcified, and as we do more and more cardiac CT, particularly with gating, it's much easier to visualize. Calcification at the site of the PDA is very common, and at times it's very hard to see on axial imaging, but very easy to see on 3D mapping. And if you were doing with fluoro, or you were doing with uh, MR, or you're doing with CT acquisition, you could see flow typically from the aorta to pulmonary artery is more common than from pulmonary artery to aorta. Now, a couple articles about this, incidental findings of uh, PDA on CT and MR, uh, making the point that we will see these more commonly. And the point being in this other article uh, that, again, it may not be critical, but it's something we can recognize and something you need to be able to visualize. Now, sometimes PDAs are associated with other heart disease, and so when you see a PDA, it pays to look around and make sure you're not dealing with any other congenital anomalies. Now, when we look at cardiac CT or even chest CT, another thing that we commonly see will be pericardial cysts. Pericardial cysts are typically water density, 
well-defined, more common in the right cardiac border, range in size from a centimeter to 20 centimeters. You can see very nice example in this case. Um, certain rules make it an easy diagnosis most of the time. Right costophrenic angle anteriorly, water density, size variability, though most are probably in the five centimeter range, and it's homogeneous without any enhancement. Well, what is a pericardial cyst? It's an anomalous outpouching of the parietal pericardium. Uh, again, 70 to 90% are right-sided, and it's usually an incidental finding. Uh, in terms of enhancement, if it enhances, you can't think of pericardial cyst. I've never seen a pericardial cyst infected. I guess it's possible, particularly if you try to aspirate it. But if you see a cystic lesion and it's enhancing, you better be thinking about a cystic tumor. And I'll show you some examples of that. Now, what can you confuse a pericardial cyst with? Well, potentially a morgagni hernia, potentially a duplication cyst, or even a thymic cyst. So let me show you a range of cases. Here's a nice example of a pericardial cyst. Well-defined, water density, classic location. You'll notice the adjacent pericardium is typically not thickened. And here it is on 3D with MIP imaging. Very nicely visualized, no issue. And here it is in a coronal display. Again, classic. I don't think you're going to make any confusion with any other diagnosis. Size variations. Here's another example. A bit smaller. Water density. Here it is axial. And here it is coronal. Very nicely seen. Now, occasionally, pericardial cysts can calcify. Though that's pretty rare. This was a very interesting case. Look at this very dense calcification in the cystic lesion. Um, you can see it's projected. Here's an anterior projection. Here's a sagittal projection. It's kind of interesting, both the anterior and posterior walls of the cyst calcified. Pericardial cysts rarely calcify. This was a tricky case. This was operated on. It was a pericardial cyst. We thought about an old hematoma. Again, whenever I see calcifications, I think of old hematomas. But it's unusual to see pericardial cysts calcify. Now, the differential diagnosis, loculated effusion, bronchogenic cysts, old hematomas, esophageal duplication cysts potentially, pericardial tumors are all in that differential diagnosis. So let's look at some examples. Here's a bronchogenic cyst. Okay, yes, it's cystic by definition, but you can see it's more posterior. Its location is classic, very common at the uh, bifurcation or near the right hilum. And here it is in a coronal display. So it comes close, but not the right location. Paracardiac nodes, uh, not uncommon with lymphoma, colon cancer, or hepatoma, but they're not going to be cystic. When patients have pericardiac nodes, they usually have other nodal things as well, but that's not always the case. But you can see here, it's not cystic. This is enhancing. This is solid. You also see posterior metastinal nodes in this patient. Thymic cysts can be very large. They can hang downward, but when you follow them upward, they really truly come usually out of the anterior metastinum. Thymic cysts are eccentric, can hang low, but often have rim enhancement, and I think the epicenter tends to be different. So although on the very lowest scans you can be confused, if you only had an abdominal CT and only had one or two scans, I guess a thymic cyst can be confusing, but it's something to be aware of. Okay, what else can we think about in this chest? Well, pericardium, I showed you a pericardial cyst, but what else can we say about the pericardium? We know its thickness is under two millimeters. It's a very thin line. You have some fluid in the pericardium normally up to 50 ml. 
When you see calcification, typically it's constrictive pericarditis, but it can be due to old trauma, it can be due to radiation therapy, it can be due to old infection. And the pericardium is involved in a range of inflammatory and neoplastic processes. So let me look at some of the unusual uh, examples. Here's a case where you look at the pericardium and it's diffusely thickened. In fact, there's infiltration which almost looks like it's extending into the cardiac chambers. And you look at it on this image as well, and you can see between the LV and these lobulated masses, there's definitely space. So it's not a cardiac chamber, and it surrounds the heart circumferentially. There's also this right pleural effusion. And here I'm showing it to you on MIP imaging, very nicely, infiltration of what is the pericardium. And here it is on the coronal display as well. So we have infiltration of the pericardium. Now, what are you thinking about? Can this be infection? Can this be hematoma? Well, when you start looking, it looks more and more lobulated. It's not going to be hematoma. It's not going to be infection. This is tumor. Well, you could think about lymphoma. You could think about metastasis. But something this extensive, you've got to think about a sarcoma. And the most common cardiac sarcoma is an angiosarcoma, most common in middle-aged men typically begins near the right atrial free wall with involvement of the pericardium there, though it can be more extensive, as this case shows, and typically infiltrates the pericardium. The pericardial tumor is some interesting facts. It's most often metastatic rather than primary. Again, lung cancer might be a good example. Common primaries, esophagus, thymus, lung cancer, melanoma, and breast cancer, with lung cancer being most common in males and breast in female. When you think about cardiac tumors in general, and I'll show you some more examples in the next talk, the majority, about three quarters, are benign, and most malignant tumors I mentioned are angiosarcomas, and more commonly occur involving the right atrium. When you look at primary cardiac tumors, the most common is the benign myxoma, which is typically located in the left atrium, in or near the foramen ovale, and about 75 to 77 percent of primary cardiac tumors are indeed benign. An interesting point is that pericardial tumors are more common than intracardiac tumors. I mentioned before about metastasis to pericardium or even metastasis to the heart in general. Those situations, common sites, lung breast melanoma, can be multiple and at times, particularly with lung cancer, you may see the primary uh, tumor on the scan. Now there are other things. Lymphoma is something to think about. Here's a great example of lymphoma infiltrating the mediastinum, but then extending down to the pericardium. This is particularly important when you're going to plan radiation therapy. And you can see very nicely in this example the infiltration. Indeed, very, very impressive infiltration of the pericardium, infiltration of the anterior mediastinum. You can see very nicely that on the sagittal view, it's pushing the SVC backwards. Now, it's not that uncommon. Here was a patient who came in actually for PE. There's a large tumor mass in the patient's right atrium, infiltrating into the atrium. And what's going on here? Well, you can see that mass. You can go through the differential. This was an AIDS patient. Here it is very nicely in the coronal display. And when you start looking at it on later phase imaging, you see it very nicely as well there. And when we scan down into the patient's abdomen, we were able to see there's a large mass involving the uh, pancreas. You can see it over here as well. And this was lymphoma. So lymphomatous involvement, uh, when you see the heart, it's often other sites of disease. HIV patients, lymphoma is indeed very common. 
So tumor involvement of the heart and pericardium lymphoma, retrograde spread, hematogenous spread, direct continuous extension, and transvenous extension are all things that indeed occur. So when we think about this prior case, we were thinking about metastasis, but also think about the possibility of primary tumor. So let me stop there and let me pick it up at this point in the next lecture. And with that, I wish you a great morning.